Well, it's good to see you here this morning. Thanks for making it out of the bed and onto the road and here. It's going to be almost 70 degrees today. Woohoo! That's why we live in North Carolina and not Chicago. Right? We'll be feeling differently about August 15th or so, but uh, then we'll get over that and we'll go back into the great weather. So, Hey, uh, we've had a great week uh, this last week. It's been really encouraging for me, for our staff, for our elders, just to get a little bit of feedback from you on the things that we shared uh, last week. Uh, I've gotten a lot of phone calls, emails, texts, and then heard things second and third-handed, and that's been really awesome too, just to kind of hear how you're processing and how you're thinking through things. And, uh, and as I said last week, I am just thoroughly excited to be on the journey with you. And I meant what I said last week, not as much excited about leading the journey. There's a lot of responsibility there. But I love, I just love being alongside of you and just being part of what we want to see God do here at Northwest. One of the things that we're going to do over the next several weeks, we decided we're going to do a little section right here at the top before I dive into our text, and it's going to be called Questions That You've Asked, all right? These are just things that we've heard that have been asked over the last week, and we just assume that if one person asked it, there's probably 10 or 12 more people that are going, yeah, yeah, I'm wondering that too, all right? Then we've gotten some other questions, and I answer the question and go, nobody else was even wondering that, all right? So there's some of those too, but I'm going to just take a moment this morning to, to answer five questions, and you may have heard me talk about these things. Maybe you missed it. Maybe I'll give you a little bit more. Somebody asked, tell us more about the chapel. When will we build it, and could it happen in phase one? The answer is that that chapel is different than our regular worship space. We want to build it kind of in a in a wooded setting out uh, kind of towards where the trail is. And we really want it to be a blessing, obviously, inside our fellowship for weddings and for funerals. And we really would love for that to be a place of prayer as well. But we'd love for it to, to really take on almost a, a physical structure, a, a sanctuary. Now, I know Jesus lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit indwells us as followers of Christ. So I don't mean that that's where God dwells at that place. So, you know, I'm theologically on the right path there, just... Don't want to make anybody think that I'm, that I'm off, off the rocker there a little bit. Uh, but we really want it to be a place that will be a blessing to our community. That's why we would love to see it happen right off of the trail there. And I would love for it to be known all along that 25 miles or so on that trail. That, hey, there is a church in Cary and just off the trail, there's a chapel in the woods. And that become a place where people actually even think of to go and to pray, and we'll have opportunities for ministry there. So we'd love to see that happen with phase one. Obviously, it all comes down to dollars. If you've built a home, you know that you kind of have wish lists, right? You have things that you'd like to do, and then by the time that you get in the house, you're just glad you have a front door, right? And uh, we're hoping that that doesn't happen, but that's kind of where the chapel is. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that we uh, are uh, underground working on some of the plans, some of the concepts of what that might look like. In fact, you see some of those things on the boards that are out there in the cafe area. Uh, we'd love to see it happen in phase one if the Lord provides uh, the funds. Another person asked, did we consider renovating a storefront or warehouse space? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. We would have loved actually to have done that. It would have been a lot cheaper in phase one to do something uh, of that nature. The problem is there just aren't those spaces in Northwest Cary. Somebody asked me not too long ago, what about the old Kroger store up here that's now a neighborhood Walmart? Uh, you wouldn't believe uh, the amount of money that that would have cost us to get that facility. And even then, we wouldn't have had enough parking. We wouldn't have had any outdoor space. And for our strategy, what we're trying to do and to be a blessing into our community, that wouldn't have worked. If we were in Holly Springs, Fuquay, someplace like that, 
There's a lot of those spaces available. We actually had a realtor that wanted us to look at a property in uh, North Raleigh. There are people that need Jesus in North Raleigh, and there's churches there that are reaching them. We believe that God's called us right here. And so we've been very strategic in, in our location. Question three is, when will we actually start to build? Well, depending on how our capital campaign goes, and depending on closing on our land and town of Cary approvals for our site plan, and then for our building permits based on our structural documents, we could actually start as soon as this fall, late fall, or early winter. And again, some of that depends on how our campaign goes, but it could actually happen rather quickly. And then the architects tell us that the kind of building we'll be talking about, we could build in 10 to 12 months, which means probably 18 months, you know. It's always a little bit more than, than they think sometimes. Also, people asked about the playground. Are we really serious about having a really cool children's playground? Yes, we're very serious about that. And by the way, not so that Christian kids can just simply amuse themselves, although we want it to be a place for our kids and for our children's ministry. We would also love it to be a blessing in our community, and that's part of that strategy. So we will be investing funds in phase one in order to get us down the road on that, on that purpose of being a blessing into our community. I made it very clear at the town council meeting on Thursday, thanks for praying for us, that meeting went great, at least we think it did, phase one, and I was very clear and intentional about letting them know that we didn't intend just to be a closed off building to the community, but we intended to be a blessing to our community. The last question was, a fishing pond, really? Yeah, yeah, we're very serious about the fishing pond. I was really amazed last week at the people. I thought that was just kind of something that we would talk about in passing and kind of one of those things that we believe could be part of being a blessing into our community for young families and things of that sort. And I thought people would kind of go, oh, that's kind of cool. Instead, right away, I was bombarded with people uh, in a positive way that thought that was just really a, a cool aspect to a potential uh, church campus. So we are serious about that. Obviously, uh, a lot of these things depend on funding, but we've Done a little bit of talking with engineers as far as the feasibility of that goes, and we've run some cost analysis on that. So that is something we're very serious about, and we'd love to see, we'd love to see happen. All right? So, hey, keep the questions coming. No question's a dumb question. It really is not. And I know people say it all the time, and you think, yeah, well, the question I ask will be dumb. People, It's not, all right? If you're wondering it, then we want to answer that question. If you've got a thought, if in your own prayer as you've been thinking and praying for this project, if you really believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart in a particular area and you want us to hear that, hey, tell us, all right? I'm not Moses. I didn't go to the top of the mountain and get the commandments and come down, all right? We're followers of Jesus and our elder team is just like you are. And I believe God could speak through some of you. So if you have those things that you want to share with us, please send us an email, a text, a phone call, and we'd love to interact with you about that. Have you ever found yourself daydreaming? I unfortunately find myself daydreaming on a regular basis. And I'm, I'm not talking about nighttime dreaming. Nighttime dreaming is a, is a totally different animal. How many of you know that you dream vivid dreams every night? All right, some of you. I'm telling you every single night. Like from the time that I slip out of whatever that consciousness is when I'm not, you know, talking. I mean, I dream dreams all the way through the night until the very moment that I wake up. And sometimes I remember them and other times I really, do you ever have a dream when you go, oh, I wish I could remember that. It was so awesome. Or then you wake up and you go, oh, I wish I could fall back asleep because if I could fall back asleep, it'd be so great because that was like, I don't think it'll ever happen, but it was so good, right? You've been there. Those are nighttime dreams and that happens to me every night. We don't have a lot of control over those dreams. I'm, I'm talking about daydreaming. 
Did you hear about the couple, in fact, uh, last week or the week before that found 1,400 gold coins in their backyard? I'm like, how does that happen, right? I'm thinking about going out and back in my townhouse and going, there's got to be something that somebody left here, right? 1,400, some of them worth a million dollars each. What an unbelievable thing, right? I began to immediately, what? Daydream. And I thought, man, what could I do with that? In fact, as a pastor, Matt and I both agreed. We decided, hey, we'd build a building, right? And that's what I'd do. I'd come the next Sunday and go, no capital campaign needed. I found 1,400 gold coins. You know, life is good. But I found myself immediately just sitting there, and I was, after I read the story on my screen, going, wow, what would I do? What would I do if I had that? And I began to daydream. Daydreaming is defined as this. It's a short-term detachment from one's immediate surroundings during which a person's contact with reality is blurred and partially substituted by a visionary fantasy, especially one, get this, of happy, pleasant thoughts, hopes or ambitions, and then this, imagined as coming to pass and experienced while awake. That's the beauty of daydreaming is because you're awake and you remember what you're daydreaming about. My happy, pleasant thoughts as a pastor, and I've told you this before, tend to go to imagining what real church should look like. I know, it's a pathetic life, right? Some of you are going, I'm so glad I'm not a pastor. Because like, if that's what you daydream about, I mean, can it get better than that? I, I do. I think a lot about that. Uh, Matt and I talk about this. Matt does the same things. We, we, we think about these things about what must it have been like to live in Acts chapter 2. That's why I, where I want you to turn, by the way, in your Bibles here at least just for a few moments. What must it have been like in Acts chapter 2 to be part of that church? That early church where they were just trying to figure this out. Pentecost had happened. All of these people had come to faith in Christ. You know, Jesus was now in heaven and he'd left the commission with his disciples. And, and now these first early churches were being established. And I daydream, I imagine what that would have been like. The text says in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and, and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. Don't lose that phrase there, favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to give you real quickly, just at the outset of our time together this morning, nine characteristics of an Acts 2 church. Okay, real quickly, if you're taking notes, I'm going to go really quickly. They were a studying church. The text says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, they weren't, they weren't devoted to the apostles' teaching so that they could become smarter sinners. They really wanted to be transformed people that were influencers with the gospel message. Here's the thing, by the way, especially moms and dads. You know you cannot possibly teach what you do not know, right? Some of you wonder why your kids don't know anything. You wonder why your kids are ignorant of the scriptures. It's because you are. Okay, can I say that real nicely, gently, sweetly this morning? It's because you don't know it yourself. You can never teach what you do not know. 
And these early people in this church, these early believers in this Acts 2 church, they were a studying church. Man, I'm telling you, when the apostles got up and they started teaching, it's like, give me more, give me more. It wasn't like, uh, time to stop now, right? They wanted more. Number two, they were a relational church. It says they were in the fellowship. That word there, by the way, I wish I could take an exit right here. That word there in the Greek is koinonia, which is just an awesome, awesome word. If you love to do Greek studies, I'm sure many of you do. If you do, study that word koinonia. It's an awesome word. There's really no words in the English language that can fully describe what koinonia means. It is a deep, deep, deep fellowship. That's why fellowship really doesn't do a good job translating it. It is holding something that is common. They enjoy fellowship, which means believers are only capable of fellowship, all right? You may like the company of other people in this room, but if you don't name the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't understand fellowship. Because fellowship happens when you have something in common, namely that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Number three, they were a Christ-centered church. We know that because it said they were breaking bread. You know, when we have communion together, we do what? We remember the Lord's death until he comes. They were Christ-centered. They realized what this thing was all about, that it, that it wasn't about them, that it was about the gospel. And the gospel would not have been possible had Jesus not come here and lived amongst men and women and, and, and then suffered and bled and died on a cross and three days later rose from the dead. The gospel would not be possible. They were a Christ-centered church. Number four, they were a praying church. They were devoted to their prayers. I'm really convicted on a regular basis that we don't pray as much as we should pray. I say we, I'm convicted personally, which means that the church is made up of individuals, that we as individuals don't pray enough, and so therefore we don't pray enough corporately. But this early church in Acts chapter 2, they were a praying church. Number five, this is my word, this is, this is not a Greek word, they were a happening place. All right. You read that in some translations. They were a, they were a happening place. Our translation says it was awe-inspiring. Translation literally into English from the Greek, things were going down. Like things were happening in this church. Like you'd just kind of like, you'd get the, the E news from this church and you'd just be going, well, that's unbelievable. So and so came to know Christ and this person came to know Christ and this person had a need and brothers and sisters came and they met that need and, and miraculous awe inspiring the text things were happening it says and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles god was using miracles to authenticate the gospel message it was a happening place can i just say in passing that's what i want to be part of i don't want to be part of a dead place do you i mean i want to be part of a happening place and by the way not just emotional happening I want to see God show up. Those, those but God things that we talked about last week. Are you with me? Those things where we just go, hey, um, no man or woman can get the credit for that. God did something. That's the happening church. Number six, they were a sharing church. It said, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all those that have need. It's interesting that some liberals would say, see, see, there's socialism, there's communism. Here's the big difference there, all right? For any of you that might wonder about that, big difference there. This was voluntary, right? Yeah, I got some amens there. See, I know where your hearts are. Yeah, this was voluntary. 
Nobody was saying, hey, give this portion. No, no. This is what we're going to talk about in a few weeks. This was hilarious giving. Look what God has done for us. Look what God's entrusted to us. Therefore, we will share with other people. There wasn't any strong arming going on. Which, by the way, let me tell you that. As long as I'm here, you aren't going to find that to be true at Northwest. I'm not going to strong arm you. If you don't want to give, don't give. If you don't want to share, don't share. You're loss. You're loss. When the Spirit of God invades our hearts, and we recognize how much we've been forgiven and what a blessed people we are, we will be a sharing people. That's what they were. Number seven, they were a joyful church. It was a happy place. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, and they were praising God. It was a joyful place. That's what I want to be part of. I don't want any, you know, Gregorian chants. I don't really, hey, to some, they like that, right? I mean, I want to be joyful, right? I want to be in a place where I feel like I can shout when I want to shout, where I can raise my hands when I raise, want to raise my hands, where I can laugh, where I can, because if there are any people on this planet right now that have the right to be happy, it is who? Those whose sin debt has been marked paid in full. Don't worry about it. Eternity is secure. Now be salt and light. It's a joyful church. Number eight, it was an attractive church. It's amazing how many good conservative evangelical theologians seem to believe that the church can't be attractive. I don't mean a building, I mean a people. I don't believe that. I believe that it's very obvious here. It says in the text, and they had favor with all the people, right? Now, I know the gospel is an offensive message. I get that theologically. Those of you that are starting to go, oh, he's kind of going a little... No, I'm not. I know the gospel message is offensive, but we, as the people of God, hear me, we don't have to be offensive. We can be people of irresistible influence in this community and around this globe, even in the world in which we live in. They were an attractive church, and they were having favor with all the people. And then lastly, they were a growing church. You say, man, why were they growing? Duh! I mean, look at it. People came and they went, this is different. What's happened here? And they told him the gospel. They told him what Jesus had done. And you remember, and there were people that were testifying, hey, I saw him. He rose from the dead and now he's in heaven and he died to, to save us. We've come into a relationship that we were created to have. People were, the church was growing. Not just week to week or month to month. The text says day by day there were people that were being saved. Now, why were so many people coming to faith in Christ? That's what I asked myself. Certainly the spirit of God was at work. That was absolutely necessary for people to come to faith in Christ. But I would suggest to you that it was the curiosity that must have been there because these people, these people in the community were watching Jesus' followers live lives that were peculiar. They were distinctive. In fact, it actually reminds me of the story of one of our high school students right here at Northwest. And I want you to watch this with me this morning. My name is Rachel, I'm a senior and I go to Panther Creek. I have two younger sisters, we moved here from New York. My family's pretty crazy, but I love it. Around junior year of high school, I met the Johnstons and I fell in love with their family, I love them. Miss Marsha invited me to church. She's like, oh, just come to church, you know, we'd love to have you. So I went with my dad to church and we sat with the Johnstons and I loved it. I loved everything about Northwest. Everyone was, it was just like a big family. Everyone would say hi to each other and laugh before service. And then after service, everyone still stuck around. Like no one left right after. 
I started coming to youth with Justin and Cole. And I remember my first time, everyone was outside playing Frisbee and just having a good time. I was like, wow, this is really cool because other youth groups that I had been to, um, it wasn't like that. Everyone was just so happy to be there. And it wasn't like parents were pulling like their hair to go. Everyone just really wanted to go. Adam gave us a message at youth and it was to challenge us to be different and different from everyone else in school and to show people that what God can do in your life. And I wasn't really at that point yet, but I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. So I emailed Adam and I told him that I wanted to learn more. And he called me back and he was like, you know, I really think that you would benefit from talking to Mrs. Eisner. So I went to the Eisner's house and I went to talk to Diana. We sat down and we were just having you know, a small talk before we got into everything. And then um, she started crying and she said that she had been praying for me because I'd been over there a lot and she kind of felt that she, that I wanted to know more. And that was like a really big shock to me. I was like, whoa, like that's like God led me here. And we started talking and she was going through the gospel with me. And I just started realizing that God was, it was waiting for me to come to him. And this was like gonna be the new chapter in my life for the rest of my life. After I made that decision, I was so happy. My life changed in so many ways. Um, my friends started coming to me wanting to learn more. Like three of my best friends, Courtney, Jordan, and Alex, they really wanted to learn more. And I started bringing them to youth group and stuff. And someone that really wanted to learn more was my dad. And he, we would have like hour-long conversations in my room just talking about things that he believed and things he wasn't sure about, and things that I could help him with or try to at least. I just loved doing it because I knew that whatever I said he was taking in, he, it was, he was absorbing it and just with each talk it was getting more and more real for him. Um, it was really cool to see. I got baptized and Adam and Matt Rice baptized me. It was just like a great thing. I was so happy. I'm living for God. Like everything that I do is going to be for Him and it's the biggest thing, the biggest part of my life now. It's just, you don't know me unless you know the story. I'm telling you that, that right there, that's why we do what we do. That's why we do what we do, because, because the gospel changes everything. It's life-changing when we begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, not just knowing about him, but coming to understand that we are desperate people. That we can do all of these things and try to be good people and we will never be good enough. We will always fall short, Scripture says. But when we come to understand that God sent his son Jesus to suffer, bleed, and die on a cross and three days later rise from the dead, thereby conquering sin, paying the penalty for our sin debt, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, everything changes. We see eternal destinations changed because a sin debt has been paid in full by Jesus. You know, some of the reasons why the early church found favor with the common people can be discerned from the uh, writings of the philosopher Aristides. He wrote early in the second century. I find his writings fascinating and 
And I, I know I'm going to have to really rush through the rest of my message this morning, but I want to read this to you. This was written just a few decades after by Aristides, a philosopher, who was observing Christians who were living in, in Acts chapter 2 kinds of churches. Let me read you what he wrote. He wrote, Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth, for they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they received those commandments which they have engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason they do not commit adultery or immorality. They do not bear false witness or embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor their father and mother and do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. Whatever they do not wish that others should do to them, they in turn do not do. And they do not eat the food sacrificed to idols. Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from all unlawful sexual contact and from impurity in the hope of recompense that is to come in another world. As for their bondmen and bondwomen, their household slaves, and their children... If there are any, they persuade them to become Christians, and when they have done so, they call them brothers without distinction. Really interesting. They refuse to worship strange gods, and they go their, uh, their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored, and they rescue the orphan from the person who, do, who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and they rejoice over him as a true believer, as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear of any of their number who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. If they find poverty in their midst and they do not have spare food, they fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour they praise and thank God for his goodness to them and for their food and drink they offer thanksgiving. If any righteous person of their number passes away from the world, they rejoice and thank God and they escort his body as if it were setting out from one place to another nearby. When a child is born to one of them, they praise God. If it dies in infancy, they thank God the more as for one who has passed through the world without sins. But if one of them dies in his iniquity or in his sins, they grieve bitterly and sorrow as over one who is about to meet his doom. I was fascinated as I read that this week. Just decades after we read what we read in Acts chapter 2, it sounds like they were people who really grasped, who really understood what it meant to be an Acts chapter 2 kind of church. They understood the mission that they had been given by Jesus, in fact, in his Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, turn with me real quickly to Matthew chapter 5 at verse 13. They understood what Jesus said when he was preaching to that great crowd there uh, on that mountain where he uttered these words. He said, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all those that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, to understand what Jesus meant when he said we're to be salt of the earth, we have to understand that in the ancient world, the number one function of salt was to be a preservative. Not like we use it today, right? On our baked potatoes or on our steak or whatever. It was a preservative. There was no ice machines in those days. That's why I'm glad I didn't live then. I mean, I, I got to have ice, right? I mean, I don't, want, I don't want a lukewarm Coke or water or anything. I want ice, right? They had no ice. They had no refrigeration. That was beyond their wildest imagination. And so the only, only way to preserve meat was to salt it down or soak it in a saline solution. And this was a common practice, by the way, right up into the 20th century and probably still is in remote places on the globe today. And so what Jesus is saying is that the world is decomposing and is actually rotting away. Death causes decay. And when a living creature dies, it can no longer support its cell structure, and so it begins to decompose. And you know this, when God created the earth and the first man and woman, everything was very much alive. And then when sin came into the world, when it invaded this world, death came along with that, and then with that, decay. And when things decay, they fall apart. It reminds me of marriages in our church and in our community and families that are scattered, law and order that are laughed at, and the basic institutions of our, of our society that are threatened with extinction. Everything might appear to be okay on the outside. And by the way, we're really good at that in Cary, North Carolina. Everything appears to be okay on the outside, but on the inside, things are rotting away. And while some may believe, I don't think there are many here that would believe, but some may believe even right now that the world could get better if we would, if we would just improve education and technology and there would be more social involvement in our culture. It's clear to me that what Paul described in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to young Pastor Timothy is that this world is not going to get better. It is the presence of faithful followers of Jesus that will have a preserving, a purifying effect on our culture, on those around us. And so Jesus was, in effect, saying that, that humanity without me is a dead body that is rotting and is falling apart. And you, as Christ followers, you are the salt of the earth. And what needs to happen is that people like us who have experienced new life in Christ, we need to literally be rubbed into the flesh to halt decomposition. Here's the problem, but if the salt has become tasteless, Jesus said, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Much of the salt in Palestine, especially that that's found by the Dead Sea, has been contaminated with, with gypsum and with other impurities. And some of you know this. You, you studied it when you were in school or you're studying it now. If salt is contaminated with any other thing, it, it loses its saltiness. It loses its effectiveness. And so this salt was literally thrown out the window into the street because it was good for nothing and it would be harmful to maybe even in their gardens. And so it was literally trampled under the feet of those that were traveling down those streets because it was useless. In the same way, a Christian who begins to behave inconsistently with who he is in Christ is useless. In fact, I would say to you that we're worse than useless. We are harmful. 
If we name the name of Jesus Christ and yet we do not live consistently in our community, in our places of influence, we don't live consistently with who we are to be in Christ. In fact, if you want to see a tragic spectacle, look at a person who is bought into the world system while claiming to be a follower of Jesus. It's a tragic, tragic thing. You can't lose your salvation if you are a true follower of Christ, but you can be corrupted by other things and by falling into the idea that the things of this world are what bring truth and value to this life and therefore lose your effectiveness because you fall more in love with the world than you are with Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus said again, you're the light of the world. Once again, you, you see that he says you are. Not you've got to pray about it and ask God to make you light of the world. Okay, that'd be one of those, as I referred to in the past, some of you don't like it, but I'll say it again because it's true. That's a stupid prayer, all right? You don't pray, God, you know, if you want me to be light, you know, just make me a light. He, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's made you salt. He has made you life. Chuck Swindoll, when he was preaching on this passage, some of you know he's one of my favorite preachers. When he was preaching on this passage, he said it's as if Jesus is at a basketball game and somebody has just fouled, and Jesus goes, you, 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 you. You've done that at a basketball game before, right? And that's a pretty popular thing. I love to kind of do things like that, taunt the players and do things like that. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to know. I want you to know you, 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 you. Don't look around at everybody else. You have a responsibility. You are the light of the world. It's not only a decaying world, but it's a dark world because as Christ followers, we've come into a relationship with Jesus who is the light of the world and we are to reflect that light in the world in which we live in, a very, very dark world. And as much as we'd like to, I'd like to, I know some of you would like to, I'd love to turn off the darkness. We can't do that. We just simply have to shine the light. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. It's visible by day and it's visible by night because it's lit up. Verse 15, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all those that are in the house. Here's the truth. We can't change what we are, but we can waste what we are. You can't change what you are. If you're in Christ, you are salt and you are light, but you can waste that fact. Just like salt can lose its saltiness, light can be hidden under a basket. You ever reach for the flashlight in one of those nights when, when the electricity goes out and you realize you didn't get the bunny batteries, right? You got the cheap ones at Walgreens and those dudes don't work anymore, right? Doesn't do any good that you got a flashlight. You have, you have no power. The very definition of light, it has to be visible in order for it to be useful. Here's the bottom line. People are hurting and they're dying and we are salt. We can halt, slow down decomposition. It's very, very dark without Jesus. We have light. Here's the problem. Some of us are so removed from the world that we've forgotten how lost the world really is. Let me read you some headlines from our area just over one day that I read. Road rage drives fleeing father and daughter into Raleigh grocery store. Experts discuss human trafficking at Forum. Durham Police Department makes largest synthetic, synthetic weed bust in department history. Aberdeen man allegedly assaults his wife with a knife. 
Mom still seeks justice in son's 2013 murder. Investigator weeps testifying about tortured child's living conditions. Raleigh man indicted on sexual exploitation charges. And that's right here in the triangle, my friends. That's not New York City. That wasn't Afghanistan. That was right here, right in our front yard and backyard. That's where we live. And yet, tragically, most of us never see these things except in passing. And when we see these things in passing, it's almost as if they don't exist and we try to ignore them and move right by them as quickly as we can. That would be a great time for us to raise our hands if we do that, right? None of us want to admit it, but I do from time to time. I pass right on by it. Get this, the salty Christian is not a self-righteous, condemning person who isolates himself from the world. You understand that? This is where I'd really love to get off on the exit, and I'd love to park for just a moment and say, okay, let me just, let me just remind you of this. If you think you are doing God's will by isolating yourself from culture, and by having no influence on this culture and complaining about how horrible the public school is, about how horrible the town council is, about how horrible the HOA is, about how horrible the athletics are at your particular school, and you're not willing to do anything to be the salt and light of Jesus, shame on you. Thank you. Shame on us if we're that kind of people. I've been there. I know what it's like to live that way. Salty Christians are not self-righteous, condemning people who isolate themselves from the world. The only way salt can be effective is how? you got to shake it, right? you got to shake it. If you look at the salt and you go, I bet that would be great on my steak. Well, shake it out. Put it on there. Season the steak. Eat it. Enjoy it. you got to shake the salt. And you have to shine the light. If you don't walk out of here with anything else today, you say, I gotta, I gotta shake the salt, I gotta shine the light. We have to get out of our comfort zones, and we gotta do that. The problem is that most churches and Christians have retreated from the world. In fact, John Stott said this, rather than retreating from the culture, we need to invade it. It is as if we are people who are shouting out to drowning people from the shoreline, swim faster, swim harder, stupid we got to jump into the water, right? we got to go out there and we got to rescue them. You say, well, I don't have a life preserver. Who cares? There's somebody that's dying. You go after them. We can't influence this community or this world if we withdraw from our culture and we go into a bubble. We have to be a people who are willing to get messy. Messy. You have to. If you've hung around this place any length of time, you've had to have heard me say that a hundred times, right? we got to be willing to be messy in people's lives. We influence when we direct without force, when we live lives that are marked by mercy, by love, by giving, by sacrifice, when we allow ourselves to be wronged and even taken advantage of. We influence, and that influence becomes irresistible because it is distinctive. It's the difference that makes the world stand up and they take notice because we are distinct from them. We are not identical to them. And they go, what's the difference? When we lose our distinctiveness, however, we lose our influence. And Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your Father. They may see your good works and they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Why do we shine as light in a dark place? Why do we rub ourselves as a preservative into this world in order that people might come to understand the life-changing message of the gospel 
and ultimately that they too become followers of Jesus. That is why we were on this planet. That's why we've been left here. If you don't buy into that, you are missing the reason why you are breathing right now if you were a follower of Jesus. That's why we've been left here. The old pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. That is irresistible influence. And how do we have it? We simply shake the salt and we shine the light. Blaise Pascal was a brilliant 17th century French mathematician. He was a physicist. Some of you know his story. He had a a dramatic Christian conversion experience. And after that, he devoted much of his thought to Christianity and to philosophy. History tells us that he began to assemble notes and fragments that he hoped would be woven into a book called The Defense of the Christian Religion. But he died just two months after his 39th birthday, and that was never published. However, those fragments were put together and were published as a work that's known as Thoughts, and it's become one of the most famous Christian books in all of history. He wrote this, Men despise religion. They hate it, and they're afraid of it. They're afraid that it may be true. The cure for this, he said, is twofold. First, to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, he said, make it attractive. In parentheses, I put, by the way you live, that your life has been changed. And he said, make it attractive, and then make good men wish it were true. And then he said... What a brilliant guy. That's why he's a brilliant mathematician. He said, then show them that it's true. By the way that you live your life, show them that it's true. C.T. Studd, pastor and and, uh, missionary literally all over the globe, which is a remarkable thing. It was 1860 to 1931 he lived. He said this, and I want this to be the testimony of my life. Maybe you do as well. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I'm afraid we have too many Christians that want to simply live near chapel bells. They want to have little holy huddles and kind of do their own thing and become smarter sinners, not transformed saints who go out and become irresistible influence. Some of us just simply want to live under the sound of church or chapel bells. I'm with C.T. Studd. I would rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Anybody with me? That's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. In fact, uh, Dwight L. Moody said this, the world is yet to see what God can do with one man who's fully consecrated to him. And D.L. Moody said, with God's help, I intend to be that man. I've always loved that quote and thought, wow, what if a church adopted that corporately and said something like this, The world has yet to see what God can do with one local church which is fully committed to influencing its its community and world with the life-changing message of the gospel. I say, with God's help, let's be that kind of a place. That's what I want to be about. I don't want to be just another church on a church corner with a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. 
That's what I want to do. And you say, we can't do that in Cary, North Carolina, because, you, know, you know, this is really not hellish. This is a really great place. Yeah, just beyond those doors in our neighborhoods with our half-million-dollar homes, there are people, my friends, that are living in hell. That's where they live. And they so desperately need you and I to live out the gospel message. They so desperately need to believe. They want to believe that it's true. And that something can change in my life. Yes, even in Cary, North Carolina. And that is a church of irresistible influence. Oh, you can daydream about 1,400 coins being found in your backyard. That's fun. I'd much rather imagine a church of irresistible influence. A church that has that kind of an influence, that kind of an impact, not only in its community, but as it impacts its community, literally ripples out around the globe. I want us to be not the only church like that. I want us to be one of the expressions of the body of Christ in this community that's that kind of a place. And I hope you'll join me. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that as many times as I've studied this, these two passages of scripture, that each time I'm able to squeeze something else out of it that I need to personally put into practice in my own life. God, I don't want to live under the sound of chapel bells, and I don't want my friends to do that either. I want us to run rescue shops a yard from hell. I want us to have so many stories of transformed lives, we can't possibly put them on video because of what you're doing, because you're just working in an incredible way. The Spirit of God is, is changing the lives of people as we live out irresistible influence, as we shake the salt and we shine the light. God, cause that to be the testimony of this church, whether in a building or not a building. That's really insignificant. We don't have to have a building to have any influence. We can go out of this place today and we can shake the salt and shine the light. And I pray we'll do that this week and that you will use your spirit to work in people's lives as we do just that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.